worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome back, Cardio Nerds. Thanks for joining us as we tour fellowship programs across the country. As part of the Cardio Nerds Case Report Series, produced in collaboration with the ACC Fellow in Training section, each episode will feature a cardiology fellowship program. Fellows from the program present and teach about a fascinating case and share what makes their hearts flutter about their program. Each case discussion is followed by an eCPR segment from a content expert and a message from the program director. Before we dive in, just remember, we are an independent educational platform. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. The case you are about to hear is 100% HIPAA compliant. We thank you for subscribing to and supporting the Cardi Nerds. Our mission is simple, to democratize cardiovascular education, promote diversity and inclusion, empower everyone to learn and teach from the basics to the advanced, while fostering wellness and humanity. If you believe in the mission, consider supporting us on patreon.com slash cardionerds. Every little bit goes a long way. We're also so excited to be growing the platform by mentoring the next generation of cardionerds. We are establishing the Cardionerds Academy and are looking for residents and fellows to join as Cardionerds fellows. Please see the link in the episode description to submit an application. Without further ado, let's continue on our tour with another fascinating case from amazing Cardionerds colleagues. We are absolutely thrilled to be joined by cardiology fellows from the University of Pennsylvania. Drs. Brian McCauley, Nerissa Haynes, Mahish Vidula. Guys, welcome to the show. Would you mind introducing yourselves? Hi, this is Brian McCauley. I'm one of the second-year cardiology fellows at University of Pennsylvania. I did my undergraduate medical training at Cooper Medical School in the inaugural class. I did my internship and residency at Brown General Internal Medicine. And my interests are in the intersect of interventional cardiology and cardiology critical care. Hello. Hi, my name is Nerissa Haynes. I'm a third-year cardiology fellow. I'm originally from Connecticut. I'm interested in imaging, specifically echo and nuclear cardiology. I'm currently pursuing a Master of Science in Health Policy. I have an interest in global cardiovascular health, behavioral cardiovascular health, and community engagement. Hey, everyone. My name is Mahesh Vaidula, and I'm a third-year fellow and one of the chief fellows for this year. I'm originally from the Chicago area went to MIT for college, Northwestern for medical school, and MGH for residency before coming to Penn for my cardiology fellowship. At Penn, I'll be spending my third and fourth years of fellowship specializing in advanced imaging with a focus on valvular heart disease and cardiomyopathies. Super excited to have you guys here. Your stories are amazing, and I can't wait to hear this next case. It's no secret, Philly is one of my favorite cities. Would have loved to have lived there at some point, but family has me tied to Baltimore. One of my favorite things to do is to roll in at night, passing Boathouse Row and seeing all those beautiful homes lit up. I just love it. And I've seen it on the half marathon a few times as well. So guys, take us to your favorite locale in Philly and set us up for an amazing place to have an amazing case discussion. I think one of our favorite places is called Sierra Green. And Sierra Green is a really cool rooftop green space that's blocks away from the University of Pennsylvania campus, as well as from the Philadelphia train station. So why don't we meet there? Yeah, that sounds great. That sounds awesome. I'm really glad you didn't suggest a food place because I'm kind of bloated from my weekend plans, but this is amazing. <laughs> uh, why don't we start off with an amazing case in the luscious green lands with a nice picnic blanket. Brian, are you presenting the case? I am. I'll start us off then. So we have a 25-year-old G1P1 female with no significant medical history who developed shortness of breath one week postpartum and presented to an outside hospital following new-onset seizures. Her discussion with her partner, she's been doing well. She had no diagnosed medical illnesses as a child and an uncomplicated pregnancy. She delivered a healthy baby at full term. Following her delivery, she went home and one week later started developing significant shortness of breath. She was able to walk around the house and outside but was significantly symptomatic which is a marked change from her baseline. She also had mildly worsening lower extremity edema. She did not report any chest pain, palpitations, headaches, lightheadedness, dizziness, presyncope, or syncope. The only medication she was taking was ibuprofen, 600 milligrams daily. On the day of presentation, 15 days postpartum, 
her partner woke up and found the patient having bilateral upper extremity jerking movements concerning for seizure and brought the patient to an ED at a hospital nearby. On arrival, she was felt to be postictal at the time and concern was raised for a clamptic seizure. She was given magnesium. However, she was noted to have physical exam findings consistent with a stroke and later was found to have a left MCA occlusion. She was subsequently intubated and underwent thrombectomy. Oh my gosh. I just want to contextualize where we are right now. Anyone who has kids just knows that the first three months are just beautiful, but also challenging. Just thinking about everything going on at home from the social context, her baby, what her partner must be going through, her family. This is such a terrible presentation and we've got to figure this out for her and her family. Yeah. And seizure alone is something to be definitely freaked out about. And a lot of times we see seizure and many, many, many times we actually don't find an underlying stroke. But when you have this double whammy. This is definitely concerning. I can't even imagine what they were thinking. During her routine workup at the outside hospital, she had an echocardiogram performed. The echocardiogram showed an EF of 20% with a 2 by 2 centimeter LV apical thrombus. Given concerns for underlying cardiogenic shock, the patient was empirically started on milrinone and then transferred to our neurology service at the University of Pennsylvania, where the cardiology team was consulted. Yeah, just going back to the differential diagnosis for stroke at the time of initial presentation, so we start off with a seizure and you think, is this a primary neurologic cause or some sort of metabolic insult? And in this case, soon after pregnancy, eclampsia was one of the forerunners in their differential diagnosis. Obviously, it can also happen after delivery, not just pre-delivery. And then the differential diagnosis for a stroke, we have to think, okay, is this a in situ thrombus? Is this a large vessel to a large vessel embolus? Or is this a cardioembolic stroke? And is this a hemorrhagic stroke on the other side? This situation, they did a great job thinking about the initial workup and evaluation for a stroke is with the rhythm monitoring, echocardiogram, maybe a hypercoagulability workup. And of course, what's relevant for her at this point in the peripartum period, there is a hypercoagulable state. And so there is certainly predisposition to having a stroke. All right. So to round out their history, as we said, they have no past medical history that's significant. The medications they're on at home were ibuprofen, 600 milligrams Q daily. On transfer from the outside hospital, she was on milrinone at 0.25 mics per kilo per minute, fentanyl and propofol for sedation, capra for her seizures, and atorvastatin for its pleiotropic effects post-stroke. They were holding anticoagulation given the large area of infarct and concerns for hemorrhagic conversion. She has no allergies to medication, and she has no family history of cardiomyopathy, sudden cardiac death, coronary disease, stroke, or unexplained death at an early age. As far as her social history is concerned, she was living at home with her partner, she denies any kind of smoking, alcohol, or illicit drug use. All right. Thanks, Brian. So to first summarize just where we are right now, because this is a really complicated presentation of a young woman who is presented with no significant past medical history, who then developed shortness of breath a few days following an uncomplicated pregnancy and presented with a stroke. And now she's found to have a severely reduced LV function and an apical thrombus. And so some things that also now come to mind is that we know that she's coming in on milrinone and because there was some concern for hyperperfusion at the outside hospital. I think it would help to understand what her vitals, her exam, and her labs look like now to understand how she looks even on this medication. And guys, as we consider the next few aspects of the objective data and how to interpret it, I'm just curious, what's going on in your mind as the consulting team? Where are we at this point? Is this somebody who has had heart failure forever? Are we looking for an ischemic ideology, do you think? Because this is such a profound change in her cardiopulmonary and neurological status. What are we going to be looking for? I think that's a really great question. And I think now thinking about her reduced LV function and potential signs of decomposite heart failure, the question really becomes, why is she presenting like this now? And what happened that is causing her to have this presentation now? And so thinking about the differential for specifically her reduced left ventricular function, in terms of one of the things that would come to my mind immediately would be a peripartum cardiomyopathy, just given the time frame of how she's presenting. She sounds like she had been doing pretty well at home previously and is now decompensated in a time frame that has a close proximity to her pregnancy and to her postpartum state. However, peripartum cardiomyopathy is a diagnosis of exclusion. We can't attribute that as the cause of her reduced LV function until we consider other etiologies as well. For example, other things on the differential could be a stress-induced cardiomyopathy, perhaps induced by the hemodynamic stresses of pregnancy. However, to evaluate that a little bit further, we should get an echo. We can look for characteristic echo signs that we could potentially see with a stress-induced cardiomyopathy, such as the apical ballooning and the hyperdynamic base. 
other things in a patient with a newly diagnosed cardiomyopathy in any other patient, you would often think of ischemic heart disease as a potential cause. And specifically in her, one thing to consider would be spontaneous coronary artery dissection, which is something that can occur in pregnancy and in the postpartum state as well. However, again, we didn't have any chest pain that she reported. We can see what her biomarkers look like to see if there's evidence of myocardial injury. We can look for an echo to see if there's any regional wall motion abnormalities that could suggest that there's a vascular distribution to the injury as well. And then in terms of her history, in terms of looking for other causes of ischemia, there was no history to suggest a predisposition to premature coronary artery disease in this patient. Finally, one of the big things to really think about is whether the patient had an underlying cardiomyopathy that is then aggravated or uncovered by the hemodynamic changes induced by pregnancy. For example, things like a genetic cardiomyopathy or familial or non-compaction could be things that she has had for several years. But then due to the hemodynamic changes of pregnancy, this cardiomyopathy was uncovered and found due to those hemodynamic stresses. However, there was no obvious family history that hinted towards that. And along the same lines, thinking about pre-existing cardiomyopathies, other known cardiomyopathies could include a dilated cardiomyopathy, HCM, ARVC, or congenital heart disease, which again, we don't have a clear sense of just based on the brief history that we've received so far. And finally, some other things that should always be considered in a patient who presents with a new cardiomyopathy is myocarditis and looking for perhaps a viral prodrome. And was the patient sick for a few days beforehand or a few weeks beforehand and now is developing this cardiomyopathy? Or is there another systemic medical condition that is predisposing her to cardiomyopathy, such as an infection or an underlying medical condition? And finally, is there perhaps a tachycardia-mediated cardiomyopathy? Did the patient have any signs of an arrhythmia that could have resulted in a decompensation and in this presentation as well? There's a wide differential, and there are things that we should definitely consider and think about. And there's some tests, obviously, that may point us towards one of these diagnoses versus another. Mahesh, wow, you just blew my mind. That was such a next-level clinical reasoning and approach to a differential diagnosis. And what I loved is you not only took the differential diagnosis for nuanced heart failure, you adapted it for the patient in the clinical situation. We're not thinking about plaque rupture acute coronary syndrome here. We're thinking about maybe SCAD, which is more likely to happen in young women of childbearing age. And then another feature I'd add is just with the presentation of pulmonary edema with shortness of breath, seizure soon after delivery, lower extremity edema can also all be in the context of eclampsia. But really, that's just from diastolic heart failure which these patients can have. But the finding of low EF decidedly points us towards peripartum cardiomyopathy or something else in the list that you so beautifully outlined. And so now we are armed with a differential diagnosis that we're going to be looking for as we listen to data. And we're figuratively walking with Brian to the neurostroke service floor as he was consultated to evaluate. Of course, there's the academic perspective of what the underlying ideology is, but then we heard that she's in cardiogenic shock and on Mildernone. So we got to figure out where she is in that spectrum, acutely, do we have to do anything to temporize? Brian, what did we find on physical exam? We found that her vitals were showing us a blood pressure of 95 over 65, heart rate of 143, and sinus rhythm, an SpO2 of 94% on minimal pressure support settings, 10 over 5 with an FiO2 of 40%. As far as her general exam is concerned, she's intubated and sedated, but arousable and follows commands. Her sclera are anecteric. Her JVP was 10 centimeters. She had no carotid bruises. She had mild bibasal or crackles. She was tachycardic with a regular rate, normal S1 and S2, and S3, but no other murmurs were appreciated. Her abdomen was soft, non-tender, and non-distended. Her extremities showed plus one bilateral lower extremity edema. And as far as her neuro exam is concerned, her right arm and leg were three out of five. Her left arm and leg were five out of five. She had no sensory loss to light touch. As for her labs at the time, her CBC showed a white blood cell count of 10, her hemoglobin of 11, and platelets of 283. Her BMP showed a sodium of 143, a K of 4.2, and an elevated creatinine from 1.4 currently from her baseline at 0.5. Notably, her bicarbonate was 29, her BUM was 20, her calcium was 8.8, magnesium was 2, albumin was 3.4, her total protein was 6, and her glucose was 108. She had mildly elevated LFTs with an ALT of 63 and an AST of 74, as well as a T-billy of 1.5 and an elevated ALK-FOS. Her PTT was 29 and her INR was 1.4, which was mildly elevated. She had a lactic acidosis of 2.6 and her troponins were negative times 2. Her NT-ProBMP was 3,860, which is very elevated. 
A chest x-ray was obtained and showed cardiomegaly with mild interstitial edema. The endotracheal tube was properly placed in four centimeters above the carina. We also obtained an electrocardiogram. The electrocardiogram showed us sinus tachycardia at a rate of 131 beats per minute. There was a left axis deviation and nonspecific T-wave flattenings of one ADL. There were no ST segment depressions or elevations or Q-wave presence. There was no hypertrophy. The voltages were normal throughout the procordium and limb leads, and her intervals were also normal. Thanks, Brian. This is a lot of data to go through. And honestly, when we heard that amazing differential diagnosis from Mahesh, I got really hungry to tackle that differential and try to identify acute versus chronic in terms of the objective data that we just heard. It's still very challenging to tease out. A lot of these things are not quite as helpful in determining etiology, but they are very confirmatory that we're on the right track with the right diagnosis. We've made this point many times on many other episodes, but when you have sinus tachycardia in a patient where you're considering cardiogenic shock or even thinking about the patient having cardiogenic shock at a rate of 131, I know they're on milrinone, but still very concerning for a hypoperfused state. Really, they're just asking for more perfusion by mounting such a heart rate. So yeah, very interesting so far. I'm sitting at the edge of my seat to see what happens next. Yeah, on the scale of sick versus not sick, this patient is sick. She's hypotensive, tachycardic, and organ injury with pulmonary edema. And already we're starting to think about the differential diagnosis, right? Because the troponins are not elevated. She doesn't have ST elevations. I'm not sure about the telemetry, but at least the EKG doesn't have an underlying arrhythmia. So probably not SCAD. We don't have enough to go for arrhythmia-induced cardiomyopathy, but obviously we need longer-term rhythm monitoring for this. I think we need an echo. Do we have one? So our echocardiogram done at our facility showed a left ventricle that was severely dilated with a left ventricular internal diameter of 6.3 centimeters and preserved wall thickness. She had a severely reduced EF at 10% with global hypokinesis and no focal regional motion abnormalities. She was tachycardic, so we couldn't really assess her diastolic dysfunction. She also had large multilobulated highly mobile apical masses, 2 by 2 centimeters and 3 by 2 centimeters that were most consistent with an LV thrombus. Her RV is showing mild dilation with mildly reduced function. Her LA was mildly dilated. Her right atrium was normal in size. Her aortic valve was trileaflet and normal. There was no AS or AI present. The mitral valve failed to coap due to the annular dilatation and showed mild to moderate MR. Her tricuspid valve showed mild regurgitation with the PASP estimated at 27. Her pulmonic valve also showed mild regurgitation. There were no pericardial abnormalities noted. The aorta also demonstrated no abnormalities. Her intraatrial septum had no evidence of intraatrial communication with an agitated saline contrast study, and her IVC was normal in size, but collapsed less than 50% with inspiration, alluding to an estimated RA pressure of around 8. So that was a lot of data from the echocardiogram, and I'm looking at these images. Her EF is so reduced, and you said there were LV clots, but these are like, they look like boulders on the study. And for the audience will include these images on the blog post. So definitely check them out because it's quite impressive. But Brian, what's the summary takeaway from the echo? So when I think of this person's echo, I think that they have a globally reduced EF, biventricular failure with left side predominant, and no value or abnormalities to explain what we're seeing already. So Mahesh, you went over a beautiful differential diagnosis. Are there things that are going up or down on your list of priorities based on the echo and the data we have so far? Yeah, definitely. I think that this echo and some of the data that we had, just even starting with her vitals and her exam and her labs, are helping us put her whole picture together now. So I think just as you and Dan had mentioned, we're seeing a very sick patient, and she has signs of decomposite heart failure and cardiogenic shock. Starting with her exam, we're seeing that she's tachycardic. She has signs of volume overload. On her labs, she has signs of hypoperfusion as well. She has an elevated lactate elevated creatinine, elevated LFTs as well. So I think this is obviously a very sick patient. And now using this data, we have to figure out why. So EKG, as you mentioned, didn't have any ST changes or anything that really suggested ischemia. I think things that are falling down on my differential would be things like SCAD or other potential etiologies of ischemia in this patient. So I think we can move that down closer to the bottom of the list. And then in terms of a tachycardia-mediated cardiomyopathy, she has sinus tachycardia, which, as we also talked about, is probably compensatory, given that she is so sick and likely has poor forward flow and a low cardiac output. So she needs that tachycardia in order to maintain her flow. So I think those two things are falling down. It's still not totally unclear to me whether she has an underlying cardiomyopathy, because we don't know what her echo looked like beforehand. 
But we do know just from her history that she was somebody who didn't have a significant past medical history beforehand. But things from the echo that could suggest that this is maybe not as chronic as before is that on the left atrium, we're not seeing a severely dilated left atrium, or it seems like it's mildly dilated. And sometimes echo can be a little bit limited in terms of assessing the atrium. So it's unclear how much emphasis we can place on that. But that is something that we can look at that it doesn't look like she may have had a long history or long-standing volume overload. Other things like a stress-induced cardiomyopathy. And the classic presentation of a stress-induced cardiomyopathy, or known as Takotsubo cardiomyopathy, we sometimes can see this classic echo images of apical ballooning or a hyperdynamic base. But we do also know that there are variants of these wall motion abnormalities as well. We're not seeing those classic changes on this echo, but it's still something that we can't completely rule out. Though that will become a little bit more clear, I think, just as we see the natural history of the disease process. And finally, I think based on the other possible etiologies of her cardiomyopathy, so just things that we've talked about were, is she septic or does she have some other underlying systemic medical illness that's going on as well that could result in a cardiomyopathy? We're not seeing those classic signs. She doesn't seem like she's febrile. She doesn't have a crazily elevated white count. She's not showing other signs so that there's some other systemic medical condition happening right now. So I think if I were to kind of structure my differential right now, I would say that peripartum cardiomyopathy remains high on the list. I think an underlying cardiomyopathy that is aggravated or uncovered by these hemodynamic changes induced by pregnancy still is on the list, but a little bit lower given the things that I talked about. And the things that are definitely lower on the list are going to be things like the ischemic heart disease or SCAD as a possible etiology and cardiomyopathies due to other conditions or tachycardia-related cardiomyopathy. Mahesh, that is absolutely fantastic. And it was amazing hearing you discuss the differential earlier and then just overlaying it on the data that we have now just elevates it even further. So I got kind of like chills up my neck, if you will, even though we're in this beautiful picnic area and it's warm outside. The only thing I'll add here is that point you made about that left atrium is so helpful. Obviously, again, knowing the limitations of echo and atrial size, but it's still having only that mildly dilated left atrium is very helpful to help us shift towards chronicity. And we use that left atrium all the time, whether it's discussing valvular disease, like mitral valvular disease, pulmonary hypertension, and so many other factors, because that left atrium, even though it's an anatomical description, when we're talking about size, we know it behaves in response to so many other underlying conditions, whether it's a restrictive filling pattern or a mitral stenosis, we expect that atria will dilate. And so I've heard this described before as a A1C of the heart. It's just more of a longer time period assessment of the heart. And so I really appreciate it when you brought that up. The A1C of the heart. I hadn't heard about that one before. I, I love it. I love it. I'm remembering a patient I had when I was in the CCU once who was an otherwise healthy, productive, exertionally unlimited middle-aged man who essentially presented all of a sudden with acute onset shortness of breath and low flow state with end organ injury. And his echocardiogram showed mitral valve prolapse with a cord rupture, a flail leaflet, and severe MR. And there was a question in the clinical team, how much of this is acute? How much of this is chronic? And his left atrium was like completely normal size. And with the acuity of his presentation, we realized that his A1C is normal. This is a acute presentation. And really, he essentially went to surgery the same day of presentation based partly on that. So very helpful. And I got to say, I've never heard of that A1C of the heart either before, but I'm definitely going to use that in the future. Okay, so I, I should tell you where I heard it. I heard it way back on the interview trail for residency when I visited Cornell for a residency, the senior resident. He attributed it to some cardiologist that they had on faculty there. So I just want to give credit where credit's due. But uh, definitely, it really has been something that totally stuck with me and really is something that has been seared in my mind as like the gold standard of knowing chronicity of the heart. Obviously, there are things that change that and people do have dilated atria as a primary process. But yeah, so I just want to give credit where credit's due. <laughs> Good, that, that's awesome. Good to know. We also obtained a right heart cath. I think it's important to note that the right heart cath was obtained while the patient was on known at 025 the right heart cath showed a atrial pressure of 11, a PA pressure of 41 over 23 with a mean of 33, a pulmonary capillary wedge pressure of 22, a PVR of 4.4 Woods units, an SVR of 2,720 dynes per second per centimeter to the fifth, cardiac output of 2.5, and an index of 1.3. And Brian, do you by chance have the PA sat? So the mixed venous that I have was 40. And Brian, do you mind maybe just talking about the reasoning for getting a right heart cath in this patient? 
So the reason the SWOT is very helpful is that shock, like many things, are clinical diagnoses. And one of the most useful tools we have in our armamentarium is the swan gantz catheter. It allows us to simultaneously get the hemodynamic assessment to discern whether we're dealing with right-side failure, left-side failure, biventricular failure, left-predominant, right-predominant. It'll tell us how our interventions need to be guided, whether we're in a low-output, high-SVR state, or whether in a high-output, low-SVR state. And it can help us differentiate not only the type of shock, but the interventions that we can use to thoughtfully intervene. That's great, Brian. And it's so helpful in this case in particular, because not only is she in cardiogenic shock, not only is she on an inotropic agent, she's continuing to do poorly with hypotension, tachycardia, and organ injury with the elevated lactate. And so we really need to better understand our hemodynamics to titrate her level of support, as well as to determine if she needs more support than we're offering her right now. This is definitely pointing us in the picture of a LV predominant problem. And that's because your wedge pressure is 22 and your RA pressure is just 11. And it really seems, again, as Mahesh had said, based on the echo findings that we saw, that this is a LV driven problem and that will definitely guide our therapies. We are in a hypoperfuse state with a high SVR. As Amit pointed out, we're on milrinone, which is supposed to be our rocket fuel. And yet our cardiac index is incredibly low at 1.3. So there is definitely a low flow situation. So I'm also really interested in seeing our next steps to address these particular issues, especially while she's already on milrinone. Excellent. So Dan, I think you bring out an important point here. It's important to characterize ventricular performance of the individual ventricles, both left and RV. So when we think about that, we can split the numbers into two different groups, something called CPO or cardiac power output and PAPI or pulmonary arterial pulsatility index. CPO applies to the LV and PAPI applies to the RV. Both CPO and PAPI were derived initially from uh, data set analysis from the shock trial. And what they did was they looked to see whether power actually drove mortality. And so they're looking at 30-day mortality for both functions. And they found that people with 0.6 to 0.8 or less in their CPO were actually in trouble and probably in need of some sort of mechanical escalation or serious support. So CPO is calculated by using the cardiac output times by the mean arterial pressure divided by the number 451. And ideally, that number would be above 1.5. When you calculate for our patient here, that number comes out to being 0.33, so well below the inflection point of 0.6 to 0.8. For the PAPI, the way I like to think about that is it looks at the pulse pressure difference in the RV between the systolic and diastolic pressures in the pulmonary artery with a reference of the preload that it's receiving. So the pulmonary arterial systolic pressure minus the pulmonary arterial diastolic pressure divided by the right atrial pressure gives us our PAPI. And the way I think about that is that given X amount of preload, the right atrial pressure, how well does the RV perform? And ideally, this would be greater than 1.5. Hers is 1.6. So when I look at her CPO being very low and her PAPI being borderline, my interpretation of that is this is an LV predominant condition that's having RV impact. That's super helpful. Just to reiterate, the PAPI. The way you explained it just is so beautiful. And the reason why it's necessary is because you want to look at that pulse pressure of the RV, but you also recognize that what we give the RV is just so important to what the RV gives us. We know that the RV is incredibly preload dependent. If you have a patient that has just an incredibly low filling pressure, like the right atrial filling pressure is going to be really low. We don't have that much expectations from the RV that its pulse pressure should be high. Again, pulse pressure would be a sign of a healthy RV that it's able to generate a pulse. But if you aren't giving anything to the RV, then we expect that the pulse pressure should be low. On the other hand, if you're giving a boatload of fluids to the RV, like your RA pressures are really, really, really high, we would expect them to have such a large pulse pressure because, hey, RV, we're giving you everything you got. We know that you're preload dependent, but we've given you all that preload. And yet you can really only generate such a crappy pulse pressure. We know you're really sick. So that's how the PAPI works by putting together what we're giving the RV and what we're getting out of the RV, knowing that the RV is an incredibly preload dependent ventricle. That was just such a beautiful discussion. And Brian, thanks for that awesome explanation of PAPI and CPO. The reason it's so important right now to consider is that our patients failing despite inotropic support and very well probably needs uh, upgrade to some sort of mechanical circulatory support. And the choice of the proper MCS strategy is really going to depend on where the lesion is. If it's only LV dominant failure, then left-sided support will be sufficient. If it's a combination of both ventricles, then obviously just an LV impella may not be sufficient. And this will also have ramifications in terms of a possible need for durable support later on. So this is absolutely terrific. And not just for the mathematician, actually has consequences in how we manage our patient. One other parameter that you mentioned uh, in her right heart cath was her PVR, which was 4.4. 4. 
which is elevated, which makes me think that she has pulmonary hypertension. Pulmonary hypertension is classically defined as having a mean PA pressure of greater than or equal to 25. And we can also further divide pulmonary hypertension into three categories, precapillary, postcapillary, as well as combined post and precapillary pulmonary hypertension. And I wonder which category she would fit into. For precapillary pulmonary hypertension, again, we have our mean PA pressure, which is greater than 25. For our case, her mean PA pressure was 33. Definition for precapillary pulmonary hypertension, the wedge would have to be less than or equal to 15. And for her, I believe her wedge was 22. So she doesn't quite fit into this category. For isolated postcapillary pulmonary hypertension, again, we have an elevated mean PA pressure, but the wedge is greater than 15 millimeters of mercury. Also, for isolated postcapillary pulmonary hypertension, we can look at the diastolic pressure gradient, which is normally less than 7, or the transpulmonary gradient, which is typically less than 12 for isolated postcapillary. For a mixed picture, our wedge is typically greater than 15, while our TPG, transpulmonary gradient, is greater than or equal to 12. So going back to her numbers, she had an elevated mean PA pressure. She also had a diastolic pressure gradient of 1, which is less than 7. And the way you calculate that is your pulmonary diastolic pressure minus your wedge. And her TPG was 11. So it seems like she has post-capillary pulmonary hypertension due to volume overload. That was a great breakdown of how to assess the elevated pulmonary artery pressures in patients like these. And also very important as we think about what the options are going to be moving forward, because the moment we have a patient who is in crash and burning, cardiogenic shock, not doing well on inotropes, we are already thinking about mechanical circulatory support. But before we activate mechanical circulatory support options, a key decision-making point for the shock team is what is going to be the out, right? Like after MCS, is are we hoping for a full recovery while on MCS, a temporary MCS rather? Or are we hoping for it to be a bridge to something else? And a bridge to something else typically are durable VATs like a LVAT or transplant. And when we're talking about transplant, we're talking about heart transplant. And so if the patient has severe precapillary pulmonary hypertension and we only replace the heart, then you're essentially exposing that new transplanted RV to acutely elevated pulmonary pressures and they just won't do well. And so knowing that her pulmonary pressures are primarily post-capillary left-sided group two elevation, it wouldn't obviate her from a transplant. And so this is a really important point, Nerissa. Thank you so much. Great. No, exactly. And because she wasn't doing well, just to continue on with her clinical course, she was maintained on milrinone, but the team was unable to wean it. She was also unable to tolerate afterload reduction due to hypotension. So again, she was very sick and wasn't improving despite inotropy. So she did go on and receive a left ventricular assist device as a bridge to recovery. The procedure was uncomplicated, and she was discharged after an unremarkable postoperative course. Over the following several months, she was put on optimal medical therapy, which consisted of carvedilol as well as entresto, and her EF started to improve gradually. Nine months later, her ejection fraction was about 35 to 40%, which is up from 10% initially. She underwent a turndown given her improvement in LVEF. A turndown is when the support provided by the LVAD is decreased in order to assess the underlying native cardiac function. During the turndown, there are a number of parameters that we can assess on echo as well as on right heart catheterization to assess native cardiac function. Some parameters on echo that we look at are LVEF, the left ventricular diastolic dimension, MR, TR, and RV size. On a right heart cath, we're looking at the cardiac index, cardiac output, the pulmonary pressures, as well as the wedge, and the SVR and PVR also assessed. So when she underwent her LVAD turndown, her LVEF, RV size, and degree of mitral regurgitation were stable. Her diastolic diameter only increased very slightly from 4.2 to 4.7 centimeters, which are all good signs. The right heart cath during the time of her turndown showed an RA pressure of 7. Her pulmonary pressures were 34 over 12 with a mean of 17. Her wedge was 11. Her cardiac output and cardiac index were 6.3 and 3.4 respectively. Her SVR was 824 and her PVR was 1.26. And remember, previously it was 4.4. So she did very well during her turndown. Her numbers looked great. So due to the successful turndown, she eventually underwent explant, where they removed the LVAD. And she's currently doing well and is maintained on Carvedilol, Lasix, as well as Entresto. 
Wow, what a remarkable course. That's just incredible. Wow, it's just like uh, unbelievable. A lot of times when you put in these LVADs, bridge to recovery is obviously your goal, but you don't often see that. Sometimes it's bridge to transplant or destination therapy. This is an unbelievable success story. Unbelievable. Yes, it is. And we all took care of her. So we're very happy to see that she's doing well. And this is one of the cases that really makes you happy to do cardiology and be a cardiology fellow. So we all enjoy taking care of her. So that concludes our case. But now we would like to just review a few definitions. So peripartum cardiomyopathy, which is our primary diagnosis, as Mahesh outlined earlier, is defined as heart failure secondary to left ventricular systolic dysfunction with an ejection fraction less than 45% with or without LV dilation. It occurs towards the end of pregnancy or in the months following delivery. And again, as Mahesh pointed out earlier, it's a diagnosis of exclusion, meaning that no other causes of heart failure were identified. The diagnosis may be delayed due to under-recognition because there is a lot of overlap between heart failure symptoms and symptoms of pregnancy. Some of the common symptoms for peripartum cardiomyopathy include exertional shortness of breath or thopnea, paroxysmal nocturnal dyspnea, fatigue, edema, and occasionally chest pain. On exam, as we saw with our patient, you can have tachycardia and elevated JVP, edema, and rails. Some may have cardiogenic shock as well as thromboembolic complications like our patient did due to the hypercoagulable state postpartum. Arrhythmias are also not uncommon. Again, the differential is very broad as we discussed earlier. So you want to make sure they don't have an underlying cardiomyopathy, an underlying congenital cardiomyopathy, in pregnancy, oftentimes patients can develop a stress-induced cardiomyopathy or Takasubo. We ruled out ischemic disease or SCAD because she's a young woman. And other cardiomyopathies due to systemic disease or myocarditis are also on the differential, but unlikely in our case. In terms of diagnosis, the primary diagnostic tool is echo. And again, the LVEF is less than 45% by definition. You may also see LV and RV dilation. You can see RV dysfunction as well and regurgitation, MR or TR, for example, and pulmonary hypertension. If the LVF is extremely low, you can see intracardiac thrombi, such as we saw in our case. Due to volume overload and atrial stretch, patients can have an elevated BNP. The EKG usually shows nonspecific abnormalities, and chest X-ray, if they're volume overloaded, will show pulmonary congestion. In terms of the epidemiology and risk factors for peripartum cardiomyopathy, prevalence varies based on region and geography. So there's a higher incidence in Nigeria, about 1 in 100 live births, Haiti, about 1 in 300 live births, and lower rates in Asia, lowest in Japan. The rates of peripartum cardiomyopathy are increasing in the United States. Risk factors for peripartum cardiomyopathy include African ancestry, preeclampsia, hypertension, multigestational pregnancies, as well as older maternal age. That was really great, Nurse. So thanks so much for going in through that. Amit and Dan, I think one thing that I really love about cardiology is the pathophysiology and trying to figure out exactly why disease processes occur. And so I think one thing that we should just make sure to talk about is the pathophysiology of peripartum cardiomyopathy. It's a very interesting disease process, but it's not fully understood and it appears to be multifactorial and it's still being clarified. It looks like initially when researchers were first starting to look into peripartum cardiomyopathy, things that were initially proposed but were never actually proven were things like peripartum cardiomyopathy a result of the hemodynamic stress of pregnancy. Or is it due to nutritional deficiencies? Perhaps could have been precipitated by a viral myocarditis or an autoimmune process. But then it looks like now we're starting to get more and more data from basic science research, and specifically looking at mice models, that suggest that it may be a vascular process mediated by the hormonal environment. One hypothesis that's really interesting is that prolactin that is secreted in pregnancy to promote lactation may be actually one of the causes for the peripartum cardiomyopathy. People are thinking that perhaps there is some increased oxidative stress during late gestation and during the early postpartum period that may lead to the generation of prolactin fragments that can then go and have toxic effects on the vasculature and cause some myocardial dysfunction. And there's another possibility that peripartum cardiomyopathy may be mediated by a reduced expression of vascular endothelial growth factor, or VEGF, which can also be inhibited in late gestation as well. 
And then finally, looking not just at the hormonal things that may be causing some of these clear pathophysiological links that are being investigated, there's also a question of whether there's a genetic component of peripartum cardiomyopathy. And some early studies suggested that there was a genetic component based on the findings that a proportion of patients with peripartum cardiomyopathy had a family history of other cardiac conditions. And in one specific genetic study of patients with peripartum cardiomyopathy, about 15% of those patients had variants in genes that were known to be associated with a dilated cardiomyopathy. Many of these variants were in the Titan gene, which encodes the Titan protein, which is an essential component of sarcomeres in cardiac and skeletal muscle. And since many of these mutations can be seen in a dilated cardiomyopathy, this finding then suggested that there may be some sort of an overlap between a dilated cardiomyopathy and peripartum cardiomyopathy. And one thing that we talked about earlier is that, is it possible that patients who ultimately end up with peripartum cardiomyopathy may have a genetic predisposition and that this pregnancy was then a second hit for these patients leading to peripartum cardiomyopathy? And so did they have either an underlying cardiomyopathy or a genetic predisposition that then, because of the hemodynamic changes, because of the hormonal changes of pregnancy, that uncover the cardiomyopathy? However, since the majority of people with Titan variants and some of these gene variants do not develop a dilated cardiomyopathy or a peripartum cardiomyopathy, it's also likely that there are other factors that are required to develop peripartum cardiomyopathy, such as other genetic, epigenetic, or environmental factors. Wow, thanks, Mahesh. That was a super thorough description of the underlying pathophysiology of this concerning condition. Yeah, I feel like I've learned so much about peripartum cardiomyopathy, and it's a condition that I've probably taken care of on a handful of times. It's so nice to actually get such a nice comprehensive review. I wonder if we can touch on some of the issues related to care after this acute issue. There are a few things that are probably worth touching on, and maybe we can talk about what the issues are and how you guys manage them in your patients. One is the question of whether or not lactation is safe. And that's a question because, like you pointed out, it's thought that the vascular toxicity from prolactin and prolactin byproducts potentially contribute to the development of peripartum cardiomyopathy. And so lactation, of course, is mediated by prolactin. And henceforth, the thought of potentially using bromocryptine to reduce the risk or ideally promote the recovery from these patients. Obviously, from the baby's perspective, there are a lot of benefits to lactation and breast milk. The 2010 ESC guidelines suggested that we should avoid lactation and breastfeeding postpartum in these patients, but small observational studies suggest that they're safe and may even be beneficial. What was your guys' advice about lactation for your patient? Do you, do you remember it all? I think that's a really good question because obviously these issues are very complicated and they require a multidisciplinary discussion to determine what we're going to do for these patients and especially how we're going to manage these patients going forward. Our patient particularly was very ill in her postpartum timeframe, so she did not breastfeed her child. However, those comments that you brought up are exactly correct. There's some conflicting information based on society guidelines and smaller studies. And so this is something that we really need to encourage a multidisciplinary discussion between our cardiologists and our OBs in order to figure out the best solution for each patient. And just another couple of issues that we should also talk about in terms of the management is that what happens to the patient if they are pregnant and have a peripartum cardiomyopathy. I think that also requires a multidisciplinary discussion to determine the timing and the method of the delivery. And then in terms of medications during pregnancy is also something that's very important to figure out how are we going to best treat these patients. And so in terms of the heart failure medications, you can use diuretics, beta blocker, and think about afterload reduction. But you really have to be careful of the type of afterload reduction you're using so that you don't use ACE inhibitors, ARBs, aldosterone receptor antagonists, or Entresto during pregnancy because those can be toxic to the fetus. Another medication that is also important to consider is anticoagulation. This should be considered due to increased incidence of LV thrombi and thromboembolic events in patients with peripartum cardiomyopathy, as well as something that we've talked about is the hypercoagulable state of pregnancy and the postpartum period. Finally, Amit, you, you did bring up bromocryptine, and I think this is a very interesting medication to talk about. And we should just explicitly say that this has been proposed and studied as a treatment for peripartum cardiomyopathy, but it's still not an established therapy. It's still very experimental. And the reason that it's been even thinking about, just like you mentioned, is that there's this one possible mechanism that's thought is that is peripartum cardiomyopathy mediated by prolactin fragments. And so since bromocryptine is a dopamine agonist, it inhibits the release of prolactin. 
and therefore it was hypothesized that it could prevent the damage mediated by prolactin fragments. However, our data that we've had has been conflicting. And so what is most clear is that we need more data about the efficacy of bromocryptine before we recommend it to every patient that we see with the periparm cardiomyopathy, because it is also not without risk. Bromocryptine does increase your risk for thromboembolic events. So it is something that needs to be carefully thought about before giving a patient this medication. Those are great points, Mahesh. Thank you for reviewing that. The second issue to discuss in terms of postpartum care, especially when a patient initially had an LVEF of 10%, is the approach to sudden cardiac death prevention. And there certainly is an increased risk for ventricular arrhythmias, VT, NVF, but the data itself is conflicted. And I think there's a general consensus that maybe we should offer wearable defibrillators as opposed to implanted defibrillators, but I'm sure that the decision-making is made on a case-by-case basis because just like bromocryptine, we don't have enough data. In your patient, she had an LVAD and so potentially was protected from ventricular arrhythmias, but I wonder if you guys have a conversation about that in approaching her care, what you would have done. Yeah, that's a great question as well. So she did not receive the life vest while she was in the hospital or anything because she was still, again, very ill. She was on telemetry and she continued to be monitored the entire time that she was there. And so, again, as you mentioned, it is a very difficult decision to make to see what exactly is going to happen with these patients. And so one thing that the team decided, and I was not involved in these discussions, but in terms of the conversations that the heart failure team had with her, since peripartum cardiomyopathy has a very high chance of recovery, they wanted to see how her ejection fraction would do with the LVAD and unloading of the left ventricle and then reassess. And then since over time, her LV function was starting to improve, they did not have to approach that. I think that makes a lot of sense. Thanks, Mahesh. And then the last thing I wanted to talk about is counseling with regards to future pregnancies. And we know that there is certainly an elevated risk of adverse maternal and fetal outcomes if a patient continues to have low ejection fraction after an episode of peripartum cardiomyopathy, and it's in the WHO category five for essentially contraindicating pregnancies. Obviously, that's a shared decision-making process. Your patient had recovered EF. What would you think would be a good counseling for her if there's interest for a future pregnancy? And how would that guide preconception counseling, approach to medication management for heart failure, as well as potentially advocating for contraception? Yeah, that's a really great question as well. I think that is a really important concern for the patient, as well as for the physicians who are taking care of these patients. And so the main thing to take away is that this is a shared decision-making process. The reason is that having periparam cardiomyopathy, patients are at risk. Even if they've recovered, they are at risk in their subsequent pregnancy to develop another decompensation. However, there's also the possibility that they could be okay during the pregnancy as well. And so I think we still don't know enough right now to make clear recommendations, but the most important thing is that we do need to sit down and talk with the patient about these two different options. So first, if a decision to avoid pregnancy is made, contraception counseling should definitely be performed. And I think that one of the big things to remember is to avoid using estrogen-containing compounds just because there is this increased risk of thromboembolic complications. However, if pregnancy is chosen and patients do want to pursue another pregnancy, then adjustments to the medications need to be made. Just as we talked about earlier, you want to avoid using ACE inhibitors, ARBs, Entresto, or aldosterone receptor antagonists since these can be toxic to the fetus. You also want to go through the entire medication list, make sure that your choices of anticoagulation are appropriate, and make sure that everything that the mother is on is going to be safe during pregnancy. So overall, I think we just need to make sure that we have these appropriate conversations with our patients to talk to them exactly about these different options, just because the data is not extraordinarily clear and there are risks to subsequent pregnancies. Wow, guys, what an amazing case and so much incredible teaching. This case really highlights a lot of the reasons why we all love cardiology, from the pathophysiology to taking care of a critically ill patient, all the way through preconception counseling for future health and preventive health. I'd love to hear from y'all, what are some of the reasons why you chose to become a cardiologist and a little bit about how you're enjoying training in cardiology at University of Pennsylvania? Thanks, Ahmed. So I think the main thing that drew me to Penn was the personalized training and the ability to create your own path. I still remember my interview with our program director, Dr. Frank Silvestri, where he sits down with you and all the applicants who are coming in that day and draws out a roadmap of how I could accomplish everything I wanted to do at Penn. 
and obtain the clinical and research training that I wanted. And as I refined my career goals during fellowship, my program director, Dr. Silvestri, and my APD, Dr. Sri Adusamali, have been very instrumental and extraordinarily helpful in helping me create a plan that would allow me to reach my goals. Now I've been able to create a unique two-year advanced imaging fellowship where I'm able to train in cardiac MRI and cardiac CT during my third year of fellowship and then train in advanced echo during my fourth year of fellowship. And we're really fortunate to have these program leaders who will support us and go out of their way to help us accomplish our goals. Yeah, Mahesh, I just want to echo some similar sentiments. I decided to go into cardiology, honestly, due to early mentorship through a high school pipeline program that I was involved in as a high school student. And my desire to pursue cardiology was reaffirmed through my experience doing global health after residency. I was in Partners in Health in Haiti for two years and saw a ton of heart disease, including peripartum cardiomyopathy, which is extremely prevalent there. So again, this case really hits close to home. So that's why I decided to go into cardiology. And like you mentioned, Penn really is a special place. And due to the leadership and the attendings, they really allow you to be creative and create your own path. And for me, that's one of the things that I really appreciate about my training experience at Penn. And in fact, one of the things that makes Penn such a unique and wonderful experience are the advanced degrees that you can obtain as a cardiology fellow. There are several master's programs that you can integrate into or apply for as a third-year cardiology fellow. There's a Master of Translational Research for those who want to be clinical researchers. There's a Master of Science in Clinical Epidemiology and a Master of Science in Health Policy. And I'm currently in the Master of Science of Health Policy due to my interest in health policy and addressing systemic barriers to care. And through this master's, I've been able to further explore my interest in global cardiovascular health, as well as community outreach. And during this time, in the midst of COVID, with a few colleagues of mine, I was able to co-found an initiative entitled SHARP Barbershops and Salons, Safe Haircuts as We Reopen Philadelphia Barbershops and Salons, which consists of a group of physicians and students who are helping local small businesses in the West Philadelphia community open safely through strategic planning, infection mitigation education, and promotion of COVID-19 testing. Also, I continue to work with the residents in Haiti, and the program has been extremely supportive of this initiative that's entitled iCARDS, an integrative cardiology curriculum adapted for remote distance learning, where we provide cardiology educational content to trainees in Haiti virtually. And a number of my co-fellows, including Mahesh, have provided lectures to the residents in Haiti, and it's been a very enriching experience. So definitely the program has supported me and encouraged me to think outside of the box and, and be creative with my career. So it's been a great experience. Narissa, that's such an incredible and unique way of using your interest in public policy as well as international health. I just I congratulate you for all the work you're doing. It's really, really awesome. Thank you. Nurse, that's just so amazing. Both you and Mahesh, every time I think of all the fellows I've seen over the years, you guys are truly impressive amongst all the fellows. So my pathway to cardiology is a little circuitous. I started off, as most college students do, with a pathway towards free medicine. But after spending about a year and a half in college, I decided that my head wasn't in the game. I didn't want to be in college at the time, so I joined the United States Air Force. And I worked as a medic in the military for six years and had deployments internationally. It was actually a wonderful interesting job, but it's hard to translate that into civilian sector. I was lucky enough to get picked up by Penn in 2002 in a new position where I was a paramedic on the floor in between the cardiac care unit and the cardiac intermediate care unit. I would transport patients, so they're built an IV team, and then I would end up pulling femoral sheets post-cardiac cath. That's when we caths were done primarily femoral at that point in time. The cath lab recognized my skill and asked me if I would come to work and learn on the job how to be a cardiac cath tech. So I got into the cath lab, fell in love with all things cardiology, and that's where the story really picks up. I met my wife. She was a CICU nurse. We have two children, an 11-year-old Connor and my 16-year-old Danny, and it's been a very interesting path. While I was in the cath lab, I got my registered cardiovascular invasive specialist. So it's like the certification for individuals who scrub next to the doctors in most cath labs outside of academia. And I ended up getting my bachelor's, my post-bac in medicine, and my master's degree in public health with a focus on biostats and epi. 
moving through that, actually, my last couple of years in the cath lab, I actually started taking over a large animal research lab for the chair of medicine and fell in love with invasive hemodynamics and research in general, which then pushed me towards going to become a doctor and going to medical school. I started as one of the inaugural members of the Cooper Medical School of Rowan University over here in New Jersey in Camden, received excellent training there, and then moved on to general internal medicine training at Brown. I really thought that I was going to be a primary care doctor and love the patient interaction, but at the end of the day, I couldn't avoid the pull of cardiology. It's just too much of who I am. It's too much of what I love. And now I'm back here at Penn amongst the most distinguished fellows I think I've ever had the pleasure of meeting and lucky enough to be one of them. Oh my God, guys, this is absolutely mind-blowing and your different tracks are just unbelievably phenomenal. And as a cat fellow now, I can appreciate, Brian, that you must have the best forearm strength ever to do all that sheet holding. <laughs> we obviously are radio first situation, but for a lot of the ephemeral sheets that I have been holding lately, it's definitely an art and a science to control those arteries and it takes a lot of strength. And I think that's why I end up coming home and binge eating. <laughs> very impressive oh, that's awesome Amit and Dan if I could just take a quick minute just to talk about one of the other things that we wanted to highlight about our program and I think one of the things that we love and I think Norris and Brian can attest to as well is just the program's commitment to teaching and education we have this boot camp curriculum that begins at the beginning of our year and provides the knowledge and skills that first year fellows will need for a call and starting on consults and our bootcamp curriculum consists of lectures that cover the whole range and breadth of cardiology. So we have lectures in general cardiology, imaging, EP, cath, and heart failure. And then once that ends around Labor Day, we then launch our series-based curriculum, which then covers topics like echo, ACHD, critical care, women's health, heart failure, and EP in more detail. And we also have this very robust fellow-driven conference schedule where fellows lead conferences on journal clubs, topic reviews, and epidemiology as well. And I think in addition to everything that Brian and Norris has said, I think one of the last big highlights of our program is the support and teamwork that's really part of our culture. Really enjoy working with one another as co-fellows and with our attendings as well. And I think one thing that was scary for me starting out as a first-year fellow was thinking about call and how to take call. And while it can be very daunting as a first-year fellow, one thing that became very clear to me very early on was that I had a lot of support from my senior fellows and attendings. And they were always very happy to help with any situation that came up. And I think that balance between autonomy and support has been amazing here. And that's been one of the things that I love the most about the program as well, is that when I was looking for a program, I was looking for a place that would provide me with the autonomy to make my own decisions and also provide the support for when I ran into situations where I needed help. And that's exactly what I found at Penn. It's a wonderful example of a program that provides fellows with both autonomy and support and I think I've had a really wonderful time here, and I think Brian and Norsa can hopefully attest to that as well. I completely agree. 100%. <laughs> Guys, this has been such an amazing discussion. I learned so much, and I love what Brian said. I think we all feel the pull to cardiology, but I'm so thankful to spend time with you on these rooftop gardens and learning about the pull to pen. So thank you. Thanks so much for having us. I'm with Dan. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you. Now for the ECPR segment and a message to applicants from our program director, Dr. Frank Silvestri. Hi, everybody. My name is Dr. Frank Silvestri. I'm the program director for the Penn Cardiovascular Disease Fellowship. It's an honor to be here. The case you just heard highlights so much about what is unique about our Penn Cardiovascular Training Program. Our mission is to train leaders and role models in academic cardiovascular medicine, but we recognize that no one phenotype is right and fits all. We're looking to train cutting-edge clinicians, physician scientists, and leading medical educators. You heard from three of our amazing fellows, each of whom are blazing their own trail, creating unique niches, and having their own unique stories, and we love and encourage this. Here at Penn, we tailor the training to the needs of each of our fellows. We encourage mashups and exploration of new territories and intersections in cardiology, including cardio-oncology, cardiac critical care, women's cardiovascular health multimodality imaging, hemodynamics, and policy, just to name a few. And we do this in a supportive family environment where we care deeply about the wellness and safety of our fellows, and education is our highest priority. I also want to highlight our program's commitment to diversity and inclusion, and we will continue to strive to train a truly representative generation of cardiologists to lead the field. 
Here at Penn, our fellows come first. They're the crown jewel of our program, and they're integral to the success in all of our missions, whether it's teaching, research, or cutting-edge clinical care. And this podcast gave the listeners a glimpse into what we look for in a fellow. We're looking for really wonderful people that are smart and that are great doctors, that want to be the best at what they do, who are always striving to learn and grow, but do so in a collaborative, collegial environment where everyone has each other's backs. The case also highlights that we provide cutting-edge training that's patient-focused, including for the sickest and most complicated of patients, both in the community of West Philadelphia, but also for the greater tri-state area that surrounds Philadelphia. We practice in a multidisciplinary environment, collaborating with colleagues across the system, and in this case, you heard about collaboration with our OBGYN colleagues, our acute stroke care colleagues, cardiac intensive care, and cardiac surgery. And it really highlights many of the strengths of our programs. One of the biggest and best heart failure, VAD, and transplant programs in the country, incredible imaging, our women's cardiovascular program. We have peripartum cardiomyopathy researchers like Dr. Zoltarani, world-class cardiovascular genetics, and amazing cardiac surgery, in addition to our clinical, interventional, and EP training programs, which are also world-class. And we offer our fellows unparalleled opportunities for basic translational and outcomes and policy research, including an unparalleled number of training grants to support our fellows in whatever career path they choose. Now, some other things to think about, and I know you talked about how great Philadelphia is, but Philadelphia is a great place to live. It's an excellent quality of life in a really beautiful, diverse city with a reasonable cost of living, great food, some of the best pizza you'll ever get in America, great culture, music, sports, and lots of outdoor activities. And if you need to be close to New York or Boston or Washington, we're pretty close to that. Now let's get to the case at hand. We were told about a young woman who's two weeks postpartum who was found to have acute, severe decompensated heart failure with a very severely decreased LV ejection fraction, a frightening burden of thrombus, and a cardioembolic stroke all ultimately felt due to peripartum cardiomyopathy. The first point I want to make is that the acuity of the illness is clear all throughout the case. And this is represented, as was pointed out, in the left atrial size, but also the LV size, which has to be interpreted in the context of the remodeling that occurs during pregnancy. Also by the lack of significant intrinsic pulmonary vascular disease, all of which speak to an acute process in this extremely sick patient. This is the pathophysiology of heart failure, acute LV failure, and this is what people need to focus on as we begin to treat the patient and figure out our treatment options. There was a really awesome discussion of the assessment of hemodynamics in acute heart failure and also the assessment of RV function prior to a decision about durable ventricular assist devices, which in this case was a bridge to recovery, but it could have been a bridge to transplant if her LV function didn't improve. And one of the challenges that was mentioned, but I want to underline, is that assessing RV function prior to LVAD is extremely challenging. There have been multiple clinical and imaging scoring systems that have been used, including those developed at Penn and other sites, but they all have their limitations. And newer tools like assessing RV function with strain or 3D RVEF by echo and cardiac MRI will likely improve our ability to understand these patients, better, select them better, and be able to treat them better with left ventricular assist devices. This case is a save for sure, and we can all breathe a sigh of relief that she was able to improve and have her LVAD explanted, but I'm still worried about her. With an LVEF of 35 to 40% on guideline-directed medical therapy, with many unanswered questions remaining, and I want to remind the listeners that recovered peripartum cardiomyopathy is defined as an LVEF of greater than 50%. Now, patients with a very low EF on presentation, those who present with more dilated ventricles, African Americans, and those who have a delay in diagnosis all experience worse outcomes. And as was pointed out in the discussion, there are many unanswered questions, including optimal duration of treatment, when is it possible to stop or wean medications, and how closely we need to follow patients after recovery. In our patient, which would be characterized as a non-recovered LVEF, less than 50%, it's clear that she has a higher risk of relapse, and that up to 50% of patients show further deterioration in left ventricular function. They are definitely at risk for increased morbidity and mortality, and at risk for premature delivery and abortion if they were to become pregnant again. So I'm still very worried about this patient, and she's still going to need to be monitored very closely and obviously treated very closely. Finally, I want to congratulate the CardioNerds for an amazing educational and fun podcast that really does meet its goals of democratizing cardiology education and sharing the wealth of knowledge and talent with the greater cardiovascular community at large. 
And I will say that the future of cardiovascular education is bright, and we at Penn are grateful to be able to participate in this incredible program. Thanks, Cardio Nerds. Wow, what an amazing case. A huge thanks to the fellows and faculty for enriching us with yet another terrific discussion and incredible addition to the Cardio Nerds Case Report series. Be sure to check out the show notes for all the case media available for review, key take-home and discussion points, and links to the program. If you'd like the educational takeaways and graphics delivered directly to your email, sign up for The Heartbeat, the Cardio Nerds newsletter. You can join the email list using a link in the episode description as well as from our website, www.cardionerds.com. We thank the ACC Fit section chaired by Dr. Noshin Riza for their support and collaboration. And a very special thanks to our incredible production team for elevating our platform. Colin Blumenthal, Tommy Doss, Eunice Dugan, Rick Ferraro, Avalyn Song, and Bibin Burgess are all internal medicine residents at the Johns Hopkins Hospital, as well as their phenomenal med-ed mentor and University of Maryland cardiology fellow, Karan Desai. If you love the show as much as we do, be sure to spread the word, rate, and review us on your favorite podcast platform, and consider becoming a patron of the show on Patreon. All right, that's a wrap. Time to make like an S2 and split. That sounds awesome. I'm really glad you didn't suggest a food place because I'm kind of bloated from my weekend plans, but this is amazing. (laughs) 